Brill. Now, an expression that you've probably heard before is, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Now, it's a way of saying, don't put all your hopes in one thing. Don't risk everything for one goal. And that advice is, is pretty good, isn't it, in some areas of life? Some of you, as you think about what job you want to do after university, might have your hopes pinned on one particular job in one particular place. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's quite sound advice, isn't it? Or you might have seen in relationships, uh, some people put all their trust and security in one particular person. And you want to say to them, don't put all your eggs in one basket. You'll only be left disappointed. Now, that advice might be sound advice in certain areas of life, but what about when it comes to religion and our understanding about God? Maybe you've spoken to people who have quite a pragmatic approach to religion. Maybe they have a little bit of Christianity, a bit of Buddhism, a bit of Hinduism, a bit of Taoism. Um, In an effort to feel more secure, they spread out their eggs and they say, better safe than sorry. And if you've met people like that. Now, in some ways, that type of thinking had crept um, in at the time of the 16th century Reformation. Now, people within churches were not dabbling with other religions or worshipping other gods, but they were hedging their bets. They had Jesus, but alongside Jesus were special practices and special people who were meant to give them more security before God. People like the priests, the saints, Mary, the Pope, Practices like the mass, indulgences, times of confession. They trusted in Jesus, yes, but they also trusted in all these other things. Now, one of the truths that the reformers wanted to recover 500 years ago was the truth in Christ alone. Because as soon as we try and add to the work of Jesus, then we'll inevitably take away from who he is and what he's done. The reformers wanted to point out that we don't need Jesus plus something else. He alone is sufficient for salvation. He alone can give us security and assurance. In other words, we can and we should put all our eggs in one basket when it comes to Jesus Christ. Now, as Jack said, we've been thinking about the five key slogans that sum up what was recovered at the time of the Reformation. And Christ alone is a bit like the uh, sort of centre of a, a hub in a wheel where all the other spokes come out from him we trust in the scriptures alone because they lead us to Christ who do we have faith in not just faith generally but faith in Christ alone how do we have that faith how does Christ come to us well it's by God's grace alone so he is the center Christ is the center from which everything flows now as we think about Christ alone tonight I've really got one big aim simple aim and it's to remind us that Christ is enough Jesus Christ is enough that's my aim Um, tonight. And we're going to do that um, by exploring two angles of of who Jesus is and what he's done. We'll start by thinking about um, his person, who Jesus is, and then we'll think about what Jesus has done. So the first heading on your sheet is the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. Could you pick up a Bible with me and turn to page 1201? We're going to turn to Hebrews uh, chapter 1. It's just after the Timothys and Titus just before James, Hebrews chapter 1, page 1201. 
I'm going to ask us to do a little bit of work um, together around tables on this. Um, we're going to think about who Jesus is from two passages in Hebrews. Chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that's the first one. And then chapter 2, verses 14 to 18, with a bit of chapter 4, verse 15, if you'd like to, um, thrown in. So I think we'll split the room in half. If you three tables on this side could look at chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. One question to have a think about. Um, what do we learn about Jesus in these verses? And then um, these three tables down here, Hebrews 2, 14 to 18, what do we learn about Jesus? Don't worry about reading it out loud around tables, just have a look at the passage and, and shout out and jot down the things that you see about Jesus. We'll have a few minutes to do that and then we'll come back together. To summarise them, I'll just put a little summary there. Um, I think the summary here is he's fully God. He's the creator, he's the sustainer of all things, he's the exact imprint of God's glory and being, he's fully God. So you can write that down in the, in the summary there. Okay, Hebrews uh, chapter 2 groups. Let's start with the back table. Who have we got over there? Well done, Shania. Um, summary here, fully man. Now, there's lots we could say, isn't there, about these verses, but I think there are two things. Hebrews 1, fully God. Hebrews 2, he's fully man. Now, there are lots of reasons why this is important. Let me just mention um, two. Um, firstly, it helps us to honour Jesus. If Jesus is God, then we should worship him as God. It's right to worship him and to glorify him as God. If he's just a man, then it would be wrong, wouldn't it, to give Jesus glory? Second reason it's important is because this is vital to our salvation. If Jesus wasn't God, then we couldn't be saved. And if Jesus wasn't a man then we couldn't be saved. And we're going to see that as we go through this talk. Now, this is uh, the next heading that I want us to think about, and we'll, we'll bring some of these things together. Um, and it's the, the line that Jesus says on the, the thing he says on the cross, which is, it is finished, it is finished. Now, in some jobs, you'll know that who you are determines whether you're suitable for the role. For example, the King of England. It's not a job I could apply for um, because of who I am. I'm not in the royal line. I'd like, to, I'd like to know how sort of far down I am, but you know, millions down the line in terms of my lineage, I'm sure. Um, but because of who Prince William is, he's fit for the job, isn't he? Before or after Prince Charles, we're not sure. Uh, time, time will tell. Now, it's the same with Jesus. Because he's both God and man, because of who he is, he's qualified for the work that God has given him to do. He's qualified to be our mediator, firstly, our perfect mediator. Just have a look at 1 Timothy chapter 2. Uh, verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. So these verses show us the unique role of Jesus, don't they? Paul says that there is one God, there's one Lord of this world who we are all accountable to, and the only way to be right with God is through the man. Did you notice that language? The man Christ Jesus. He is the one mediator between God and, and men. Now you might be wondering what a mediator is. It's basically someone who represents you. They're a middleman. They're a, a go-between. That's what a, a mediator is. And the one person who's qualified to go between God and man, to represent both sides, is the one who's both God and man in one person, um, the man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. But he's not only our perfect mediator, he's also our perfect priest. So I want to spend a bit longer on this because this is really important at the time of the Reformation because the priestly work of Jesus was being undermined um, 500 years ago. 
Now, if you've still got Hebrews open, um, turn forward to Hebrews chapter 5, page 1204, and have a look with me at at verse 1. We read here, Every high priest is selected from among men and is appointed to represent them in matters related to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Here is a really good summary of the work of a priest and we see three main aspects of the priesthood. The first thing is that they are selected from among men. The second thing is that the priest represents the people in matters related to God. He is the go-between between God and men. And third, we see that he offers gifts and sacrifices to deal with sins. So the priest is selected from among men, he represents the people, and he offers gifts and sacrifices to deal with sins. Now there's a picture on the next side of your um, handout if you turn over the page. Um, And this might help us to understand um, his role a little bit better. This is why your handouts were in colour this week, rather than the normal uh, black and white. It's so that we could see the priest in all his beautiful array. And um, the piece of clothing I want to draw your attention to here in this picture is the breast piece. Now that breast piece, if you um, have a look at it, um, was on his chest and it's got 12 stones on it. And in Exodus, we see the significance of it. Um, Have a look at Exodus 28 verse 21. There are to be 12 stones, one for each of the names of the sons of Israel, each engraved like a seal with the name of one of the 12 tribes. So each stone on this breast piece represents one of the tribes of Israel. There is one stone for the Gadites, one stone for the Reubenites, one stone for the Benjamites, and uh, so on for the the tribes. And we see uh, why this is important in verse 29 of the chapter, Exodus 28, verse 29. Whenever Aaron enters the holy place, he will bear the names of the sons of Israel over his heart on the breast piece of decision as a continuing memorial before the Lord. So do you see that as the high priest entered the most holy place, the inner part of the temple, he's not acting on his own, just on his own behalf. He's representing all the people of Israel. The names of the tribes are written on his chest. He is their mediator acting on their behalf. And as he does his work, sacrificing in the temple and as the people wait outside, he's acting for their benefit. He's making sacrifices for their sins. Now, as we move into the New Testament, we see that this entire priestly system was pointing forward to the work of our great high priest, Jesus Christ. He was a suitable high priest because he was chosen from among the people. He was a flesh and blood human being, the man, Christ Jesus. But his work is far, far better. Let's have a look again. Just turn forward to Hebrews chapter 10. And we're going to look at verses 11 to 14. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. Now, as I read, just notice the contrast between the Old Testament priests and the work of Jesus. Verse 11, day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Do you see the difference? 
between the priests of the Old Testament and the, the great high priest, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament priests sacrificed day after day, stood at their duty day after day, year after year, offering the same sacrifices again and again and again, but they were never able to take away sins. It is a wearying, repetitive dis description, isn't it? And the sacrifices couldn't take away sins for two reasons. One is because the sacrifices were animals. Animals can never pay for our sins because they're not adequate substitutes for us. A goat is not the same as a human being, in case you were wondering. They're, they're different. A bull cannot die in your place as your representative. And the second problem, the reason why these sacrifices couldn't atone for sins completely, was because of the priests who made the sacrifices. They had their own sins to pay for. And because they were human, they died and they needed replacing. But the difference with Jesus is huge, isn't it? Look again at verse 12. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. He was a perfect sacrifice because he was a perfect substitute, fully God and fully man. And so his sacrifice actually works. It atones for the sin of God's people for all time, in all places, forever. Now, one of the ways we know that his sacrifice is enough is because of what Jesus does in verse 12. Do you see what he does? He now sits down. One thing I've noticed about uh, Natalie, my wife, is that she very rarely sits down. She's got lots to do, looking after children, cooking, preparing Bible studies, helping other people, doing lots of things around the house and outside the house. And so when she sits down, you know that her work is done for the day. You know that she's finished. When you've finished all your exams um, this summer, I'm sure you'll sit down and enjoy um, some rest. Sitting is a sign of rest and having finished your work, isn't it? It's the same with Jesus. We have no need for another priest, he has sat down. We have no need for another sacrifice, we have no need for another mediator, we have no need for someone else to bring us into relationship with God because he has done it. That is why when Jesus died on the cross, he could cry out, it is finished, it is finished. This is what we mean by Christ alone. Now I wanna think with you about how this played out at the time of the Reformation, because as you know, um, the church in Europe at the time was predominantly Roman Catholic. It was under the authority of the Pope in Rome and it was governed by bishops and priests. But as the reformers lived and spoke uh, and ministered in these churches at the time of the Reformation, they were beginning to see that the statement, it is finished, and the idea that it's Christ alone where salvation is found was actually being undermined by lots of practices in the Roman Catholic Church. We've seen that biblical Christianity proclaims it is finished, but sadly, in practice, the Catholic Church was saying it continues. It was making people think that it continues. Now we're going to think about two practices in the Roman Catholic Church that continue today, the Mass and then praying to saints. Um, let's think first about the Mass. Now the Mass is what we would call communion or the Lord's Supper um, most of the time in our churches. But for a Catholic, the Mass has a different focus and a different significance in the life of the church. In the Mass, Catholics believe that the bread and wine are not merely symbolic of the body and blood of Jesus, but that they are actually transformed into the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. And so even though outwardly the bread and the wine remain the same, the substance of them has fundamentally changed. And the big word used for this is transubstantiation. I'll leave you to spell that on your sheets or uh, just leave a blank at that point. 
Just have a listen to the words that a priest prays during the Mass um, so that we can see this together. Here's what the priest says. God our Father, we now ask you to send your Holy Spirit to change these gifts of bread and wine into the body and blood of Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Catholic believers wouldn't say that they are repeating Christ's sacrifice on the cross. They see a uniqueness about it. They would say that the priest in the Mass is offering this sacrifice anew and making it applicable um, for those who take the Mass. This is the way to receive the benefits of Christ's death on our behalf. And therefore, if we don't partake of the Mass, then we don't partake of Jesus in this thinking. I wonder what you make of this teaching in light of what we've seen so far in this talk. I'm going to let you chat in on, around tables just for 30 seconds. What are some of the, the problems or the things you might want to question about that view? Just chat for 30 seconds around tables. Okay, just a few thoughts from me that I'm sure you, some of these things you talked about around tables. Um, it undermines the idea that, that the work of Jesus is finished, doesn't it? Because there's something else that needs to happen. Um, it also confuses what we saw about Jesus being both fully God and fully man, seated at the right hand of heaven, because how could he be there and also in the bread and the wine as it's being sacrificed? The priest also basically sets himself up as a mediator. He's able to bring you to God and has some special ability to transform the bread and the wine for you. And so the priest becomes incredibly significant um, for the Catholic believer. We would want to say, why would we need to sacrifice Jesus anew? when he's already been sacrificed once for all on the cross. Listen to how John Calvin put it. He said, the more detestable is the fabrication of those whom, not content with Christ's priesthood, have presumed to sacrifice him anew. The papists attempt this each day, considering the mass as the sacrificing of Christ. Later on in the Institutes, he says that the mass inflicts signal dishonor upon Christ, buries and oppresses his cross, consigns his death to oblivion and takes away the benefit which came to us from it. Tell us what you really think, Calvin. Do you see his point? By sacrificing Jesus anew in the Mass, Catholics show that they're not content with the priesthood of Christ. They dishonour him and they bury the cross under church tradition. Now we need to get a sense for just how important the Mass is for Roman Catholic believers because this explains why reformers were so violently opposed on this issue of um, the Mass and transubstantiation and the, the Lord's Supper. In fact, many people who denied transubstantiation, particularly under Mary I in England, were burned at the stake. One such martyr was called Andrew Hewitt. He was a 24-year-old tailor's apprentice, same age as Howie Stones, I think. Is that correct, Howie? 24. Um, here is an account of his trial. Just listen to this. The bishops asked him about the bread in communion and they said, do you believe it? it is really the body of Christ, born of the Virgin Mary? He said, no. And they said, why not? Because, Hewitt replied, Christ commanded me not to believe all men who say, behold, here is Christ and there is Christ, for many false prophets shall arise. Then the bishop smiled at him and the Bishop of London said, unless you're rev you revoke your opinion, you will burn. Good, said Hewitt. And he was burned to death. If you've ever read um, Five English Reformers, you'll see that this is a pattern again and again. Christian after Christian killed for denying transubstantiation. Now it shows how important it was, doesn't it, at this time? Probably more important than we sort of uh, give it credit for today. 
And these people who were willing to burn at the stake believed in Christ alone and they didn't want that teaching to be undermined uh, through this practice. Now, the second thing um, to think about is um, praying to saints. This is another uh, practice in, in the church at the time and that carries on today. I went to the Vatican um, a number of years ago, had the opportunity to see St. Peter's Basilica. If you've ever been, you know just how impressive this building is. And one thing that stands out is the number of things considered special and sacred in the basilica. Special objects and relics, special stained glass windows and plaques, special things in special rooms, and most of all, special saints. I remember uh, walking past a statue and people were going by kissing the feet of the statue because here was a really important saint and praying to this uh, statue of the saint. Saints are held in very high regard by Catholics and the saint who stands above them all is the Virgin Mary. Now again, it's hard for us to come to terms, I think, with just how important Mary is for Catholic believers. But some of the prayers that Catholics pray give us an insight into her importance. Let me uh, read uh, Hail Mary, which you have probably heard of. Um, here are the words on your sheet. Hail Mary, full of grace, our Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Now it's insightful, isn't it? Because it shows us the role that Mary has for a Catholic believer. Do you see what they're asking Mary to do? Pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of death. They're pleading with her to intercede before God. She's a mediator. Well, listen to these words of Pope John Paul II, who was Pope for nearly 40 years in the 20th century. He said, Mary places herself between her son and mankind in the reality of their wants, needs and sufferings. She puts herself in the middle. That is to say, she acts as a mediatrix, not as an outsider, but in her position as mother. She knows that as such, she can point out to her son the needs of mankind, and in fact, she has the right to do so. John Paul II refers to Mary as a mediatrix, a female mediator. She's in the middle of us and Jesus, pointing out our needs to him. And so as we pray to her, she will take our prayers to Christ. We've got the same problem as we did with the Mass, haven't we? Instead of being dependent on Jesus and his finished work, we become codependent on Mary, another mediator who is qualified to hear our prayers and bring them to God. Francis Turretin sums up um, the issue well. He says that the mediation of saints cast disgrace upon, upon Christ as if he was not alone sufficient. That's the problem. So Catholics believe in Jesus's unique identity, but they fail to live out in practice his finished work. Eggs are placed in multiple baskets. It's reliance on Jesus and it's the reliance on the mass and Mary and saints and priests. And as we said before, if we take away, um, so if we add to the work of Jesus, then inevitably we take away from it. Now I want to ask as we come to a close, why did this kind of teaching spring up in the Roman Catholic Church? Why set up all these extra things? And in particular, why might we be tempted along a similar path to add to the work of Jesus. I want us to just examine our own hearts as we, as we come to an end. John Calvin helps us here, I think, when he talks about Roman Catholic belief. He's, he's writing about praying to saints and he tries to pinpoint what is behind this Catholic thought process. Have a listen to what he says. But if we appeal to the consciences of all who take pleasure in the intercession of saints, we shall find that their only reason for it is that they are filled with anxiety as if they suppose that Christ were insufficient. 
I think that's a really insightful point. Why might we be tempted to trust in Christ plus something else? Well, it's because we're anxious. We're anxious that Christ might not be all we need. We're anxious that maybe his sacrifice wasn't enough. We are anxious that maybe we need someone or something else to get us to God. And so we spread out our eggs, better safe than sorry. But the fact is that if we hedge our bets, then we will be extremely anxious. We'll have no certainty of our salvation because our confidence would gradually shift onto us as human beings and our effort rather than on Jesus. I remember having a conversation with a close uh, Catholic relative of mine who was uh, in her old age and she said to me that she wasn't sure where she'd go when she died. She was really anxious about life after death. I just found that so sad. 60 years in the Catholic Church, countless prayers to saints, Sunday masses, sermons from the priest. She was still uncertain about the most foundational question of life. Where will I go when I die? Because the work of Jesus had been undermined through what she'd been hearing. But what do we learn from Christ alone? Well, we learn that we have no need to fear because Jesus is enough. Nothing needs to be added to his work. Nothing more needs to be done. No more sacrifices need to be made. It's finished. And so we can now draw near to God with confidence through Jesus in full assurance of faith with our sins forgiven. Now, we'll think more about this in our next couple of weeks. How, how do we actually take hold of Jesus and his finished work? Well, we'll see it's by faith alone, through grace alone. That's the next couple of weeks. For tonight, my point is, is simply this, that Christ is sufficient to save us. It's captured well in a Reformation writing called the Heidelberg Catechism. It's written in a question and answer format. And the first question is this, what is your only comfort in life and death? Not priests, not the church, not the Pope, not any works we do, but our only comfort is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful saviour, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood has fully satisfied for all my sins. Let me urge you tonight to throw all your eggs in this basket, to lean your entire confidence on Jesus Christ, because his work is enough. I'll hand back over to Jack.